When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my dear friends, and Happy Easter. My name is Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And if you're new to the channel or the podcast, here we study Scripture as long as we can every week, verse by verse whenever possible, seeking to deepen our understanding of God's Word, and especially looking for personal meaning everywhere we can find it, which seems to be just about everywhere. So far this year, we've been studying the Old Testament. And as we've been plowing through Genesis and Exodus, I hope that you've been as amazed as I am at how relevant everything seems to be. Now, today we're not going to be tackling a chunk of chapters like usual. Instead, we will be roaming throughout the scriptures, trying to gain the deeper understanding of a single subject, and that is the Easter season, the, the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death that we celebrate this time of year. I even wore my Easter egg tie for the occasion. Not that Easter eggs or Easter bunnies, for that matter, have much scriptural symbolism, but maybe even those can point us forward to Christ if we have eyes to see. Uh, rabbits, after all, do seem to be synonymous with multiplication. They're multiplying like rabbits, they say. Uh, maybe that's why they picked it, that the Easter season marks the beginning of spring, well, at least in the northern hemisphere, as the earth is emerging from the winter of death and darkness and new life is beginning to break forth in incredible ways. Maybe that's where the Easter egg comes in also. That the egg is closed, it's sealed, it might as well be a tomb if nothing ever emerges. But there's something miraculous taking place within that egg. And once it cracks open, then life will burst forth just as Jesus burst forth from that empty tomb. To understand the atonement and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he conquered death so that we could all emerge forth from our tombs at some point with glorious newness of life. I do look forward to speaking about Easter, and I hope that you'll take this lesson as my humble Easter gift to each of you. Now, we're studying the Old Testament, so to have an Easter message based on the Old Testament, and we're not going to confine ourselves to the Old Testament, we'll be ranging all over the place, like I said, but is the Old Testament a place where we can really come to understand Easter better? I hope that you see that it is. All things point forward to Jesus Christ. Remember Moses 6, when God said that to Adam? Everything created is created and made to bear witness of Jesus. Uh, we'll see as we begin studying the Law of Moses that Amulek was right. That every wit of it, every little piece, is intended to point forward to the great and last sacrifice of Jesus Christ. With my younger students, I sometimes tell them, the Old Testament is the ultimate game of where's Waldo? Except we're finding someone far more important than Waldo. We're seeking Jesus. And as we've been seeing with all of these types and shadows that point to him, uh, Joseph feeding his brethren and forgiving them for their betrayals, or... The Passover that we studied recently, that no matter what else happens in life, the only thing that will ultimately free us from bondage is the death of the firstborn. 
And so as we take upon ourselves, upon our households, the blood of that sacrificial lamb, then sin and death, or at least their consequences, can pass over us and we can be freed to be able to march forward toward the promised land. There are so many incredible symbols here. And it was intended to be that. In fact, there's an amazing verse in the book of 2 Corinthians where Paul is teaching these Corinthian saints. They're all emerging from their Old Testament culture, right? Going from the Mosaic Law to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about Moses descending from the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai with the tablets of stone, which were so glorious that Moses had to be veiled so that people could endure his presence. And that was just for the Mosaic Law. If it was that intense for the Law of Moses, those tablets of stone, then imagine how glorious it will be when God parts the veil and writes upon the fleshy tables of our heart the new law, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is, is distinguishing between those two, comparing them, and talking about old versus new, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Heart, New Heart, and describing just how glorious the new is by reminding them of just how glorious the old was. Now, in the midst of all that discussion of the veil, that Moses had to be veiled so the people could, could endure him, notice this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. But their minds were blinded, the people's were. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. That's why I say it's a game of where's Waldo, or better yet, an experience in seeking Jesus. If we're studying the Old Testament with the veil on, and perhaps some of you uh, brides, former brides, know what it's like to have a veil over your face, and yes, you can make out objects and you can see, but not very clearly. And that, in some ways, is how we have tended to read the Old Testament through our lives, with the veil on. And no wonder we're confused by its message. And yet, what does Paul say? If you want to unveil the Old Testament, then bring in Jesus. And the veil is done away in him. Because you'll see crisply and clearly that all of these things are meant to point forward to him. And I hope you'll get that sense today as we look for Easter. Now, to do this, I want to... Well, I want to focus on a single text and then expand it from there. When I was in divinity school, I took a class on homiletics. And homiletics is the art and science of preaching. Yeah, there's a whole study of that. You can get a PhD in homiletics for crying out loud. Uh, it makes me always laugh because I think Latter-day Saints, we don't even call them sermons because we're not good enough to sermonize. But we can talk, I guess. That's all we're doing. We're up there talking. Well, the Lord can even bring the Spirit out of that. But to be in this class with people who were getting PhDs in homiletics, there, there were some incredible preachers there uh, among my friends. My favorite were my, my African-American classmates. The, uh, black Protestantism is, it's like listening to Martin Luther King Jr. every Sunday. Uh, just such gifts. And to see the passion with which they preach is a glorious thing. In fact, we would be studying together as a class, looking for different scriptural texts from which we could build our sermons. And I always laughed when, when one of my friends would look at a verse and, and see something that just jumped off the page and think, whoa, I could definitely make a, an hour sermon 
out of this one one verse. But uh, especially my African American friends would look at it and go, "Oh, that'll preach. That'll preach." And I just loved that thought of finding verses that will preach. Well, I want to talk and focus today on a single verse that, yes, is in the New Testament, but is based on the Old Testament. So it will, it will propel us back in time to make sense of what, uh, what symbolism and imagery from the Old Testament is being drawn upon. But before I tell you the, the verse, I need to tell you a story. And I've shared this with some of you in the past, so bear with me. But when I met my wife and fell in love and wanted to marry her, I realized I wasn't just marrying her. I was marrying her whole family. And I felt very strongly that I needed to get permission from her parents, or at least their blessing, as I was joining their family. Well, we were visiting my wife's family in Northern California, and I was hoping that she'd get her spiritual confirmation that we were right any day. So I figured I better not postpone that conversation. And I had pictured for years what it would be like to sit across the table in some mahogany-lined office with a, you know, some stern businessman, for example, that was asking me what I intended to do uh, to support his, his daughter uh, before he let me whisk her off her feet. Well, I met my father-in-law, and he doesn't have a mahogany-lined bone in his body. He's really down-to-earth, uh, really informal, hilarious guy, um, but still really intimidating. At least he was for me at the time. And I remember we went and played church basketball in the morning. What better way to soften someone's heart than smash them up underneath the basket, right? Well, that was us. But afterwards, we come home, and we were, my wife and I were planning to drive back to Utah that afternoon. But when we got home, my, my father-in-law started barking out orders to the rest of the family members, saying, Okay, Jared and Emily are leaving soon, so get your chores done, kids. Say goodbye. I'm jumping in the shower. And, and I was like, Oh, he thinks we're leaving right now. And it's, it's go time. I've got, to, I've got to stop him. I've got to talk to him. And so there went all my, my teenage visions of this serious heart-to-heart. I'm like, i got to go. And so I turned to see if I could ask him to talk. But he had already turned away from me and was marching straight into the master bedroom, which was not where I intended to have this conversation. Well, oh well. It's go time. And so I followed him into the master bedroom. Well, he didn't know I was following him, so he kept on walking. And since he intended to take a shower, you know where he went. Straight into the master bathroom. And now I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is really not where I intended to to have this conversation. But I'm this far, and I'm going to see it to completion. So I followed him into the master bathroom, and his wife was in there folding towels or something. And she looks up and sees her husband walk in, no big deal, but then sees me follow him in, and that it was a bigger deal. And so she gets wide-eyed, and that alerts her husband that, wait, have I been followed this whole time? That he wheels around, and there the three of us are, in the master bath, as I'm feeling incredibly awkward. Uh, <laughs> love the decor. Um, can I talk to you two for just a quick second? I really love your family, uh, one member of it in particular, and I was kind of hoping that if it was okay with you, if she ever decides to marry me, uh, do we have your blessing? And they bust out laughing, uh, telling me, yes, of course, good luck uh, convincing her. Uh, Be patient. She's worth the wait. Those were words to live by for my father-in-law. But I got my permission in the strangest of places. In fact, my father-in-law has yet to let me live that down. There'll be times where he'll still say, Hey, Jared, anything important we need to talk about? I mean, bathroom's open. We can go and discuss anything. (sighs) Well, 
I realized I needed something that meant everything to me. And I was willing to risk whatever it was to be able to engage in that conversation, even if it meant following my father-in-law into the master bathroom. Well, there's the story. Here's the text. And it comes from Hebrews chapter 4. Now, if you want a New Testament text to point you back to the Old Testament, look no further than Hebrews. As, as we're learning from a Hebrew perspective, their background and their understanding, their, their immersion in the Old Testament that was meant to prepare them once the veil came off to recognize Jesus Christ for who he always was, the Messiah that had been promised them. Well, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now do you see why I shared that story before I shared that scripture? Because I came boldly, not unto the throne of grace, but unto the master bathroom. And that boldness paid off. I, I wasn't thrown out of, the, out of the house. In fact, I was welcomed into the family, despite the fact that it, it, it required me to muster all of my courage to go in there. That's exactly what that verse is suggesting we all do, to muster that courage and come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? So that once we're there, we can obtain two things, mercy and grace. Grace to help in time of need. In some ways, mercy suggests the, the negative to neutral. I've been forgiven of those sins. And then grace suggests the neutral to positive, that I can receive the enabling power of the Savior's atonement that with his grace I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So whether it's justification through mercy or sanctification through grace, there's some overlap between them. Uh, but as we come to receive, well, I've heard it said this, that justice is when we get what we deserve. Yikes. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve, as in terms of punishment. And grace is when we get what we don't deserve which is that added measure of help and strength. And so there's God's promise to us. We can find mercy and grace to help in time of need, but only if we come to the throne of grace and only if we come boldly. Now, what's that all about and what does it have to do with the Old Testament? I absolutely love this verse. It'll preach. And so I'm hoping that you'll fall in love with that text just like I have. Now, to understand it, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Because these Hebrews would have understood immediately what the writer meant by coming boldly to the throne of grace. You see, the throne of grace is not just some symbolic coming unto Christ. Rather, it's a very specific place and time and person from the Old Testament. You see, the throne of grace is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you kind of get a sense of what this is. The Ark is a box, okay? Noah had a, a big wooden box for all of the animals. Uh, little baby Moses was placed in an ark uh, to be able to float down the Nile. Well, here's a box to contain the most important things in Israelite history. It will contain the tablets of stone. That is the covenant, hence the ark of the covenant. Also, as we've studied recently, a pot of manna was placed there 
to commemorate the fact that God will always provide for our every need. And Moses slash Aaron's rod was there. Uh, which symbolized God's power and his miracles. Later we'll see it symbolize his priesthood authority. Uh, and so within this ark, there are all of these artifacts. Uh, there's the presence of God. Well, the lid that covered it had two cherubim on it. Cherubim, some kind of heavenly being with arms outstretched to cover the covenant beneath. Now, as we've studied a lot in the Old Testament, and anytime you see something covering, then our eyes should light up. Because to cover is the verb they use for atone. The atonement is when Christ covers our sins. The coat of skins that covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve. This lid that covers the covenant. And despite our broken law, despite our ignorance, of the blessings that God showers upon us. There's the pot of manna. Despite our, our errors in leadership or our inability to see the miracles of God guiding us on our journey, there's the rod. Those lapses of faith, those sins and transgressions can all be covered by the atonement of Christ. They're covered by that lid. That lid is covered by the cherubim. And that those cherubim are covered by the glory of God himself. You see, the throne of grace. I thought a throne was the place that the king sat. Well, that's the intention. That's what they're envisioning here. That the Ark of the Covenant becomes the throne of God. At least the lid he was able to sit upon. If you think of the priests putting their, those staves through the rings and lifting the Ark of the Covenant upon their shoulders. Can you picture kind of a royal procession as people would carry the king upon this, this throne, elevated above all people as they bring the, the king forth? Well, here we have the king of kings the Lord of Lords, and Israel is burying him up and, and bringing him before them. That's how you're going to get to the promised land. Oh, there's the miracle of the parting of the, of the Jordan River, for example. There is a, the miracle of defeating the Philistine armies. Uh, whenever the ark of God went before them, there was the sense, the confidence, the faith, that God was with them, because there he is, symbolically seated upon the throne of grace. That lid is also referred to at times as the, the atonement throne or the mercy seat. That's often the way it's referred to in the Old Testament, the mercy seat. But again, think of the imagery. It's a seat. It's a throne. It re represents mercy or atonement. Or grace. If you think about the beautiful hymn, I stand all amazed. You remember that line? I will praise and adore at the mercy seat. Think about what is that lyric is suggesting. That I am coming to the mercy seat. I'm entering the presence of God so that I can obtain mercy and grace for time of need. I'm approaching the Ark of the Covenant. Now for this again, I'm a Hebrew. I'm thinking, what does that symbolize? What does that mean to come to the throne of grace? Wait a minute. This is a temple text. 
Because yes, the Ark of the Covenant was born on the shoulders of the priests as they are marching toward the promised land. But when it's in a fixed position, it stands within the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness or within the temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. And to think of that, the throne room of the King of Kings, that's where the Ark of the Covenant stands. Now, if we can understand our Old Testament architecture, the way the tabernacle of Moses was designed and set up, and the way the Temple of Solomon, it's just double all of the, the dimensions. There were two rooms within the tabernacle or within the temple. The, the first room was called the holy place, and the second room was called the holy of holies. The holy of holies was a perfect cube to represent perfection. Same dimensions, length, width, height. And the only piece of furniture within it was the Ark of the Covenant. The anteroom, the room before the Holy of Holies, was the holy place. Same width and same height, but double the, the length. And within that room were several pieces of furniture. There was a candlestick on your left, providing light to all that were within God's house. To the right, there was a table of showbread. Think sacramental table, so to speak. And then going forward, right before you entered the Holy of Holies, was an altar of incense. There was a sacrificial altar, but that was before you even entered the place. There was that golden laver uh, to be washed, and then this altar of sacrifice to give your all to God. And those were prerequisites to even entering God's house at all. But once you enter and pass light and pass life, there's the bread, those loaves and wine, then you have this altar of incense with the smoke ascending to heaven like the prayers of the saints, filling the house of God with a sweet savor. Now right past the, the altar of incense was a veil. On that veil were embroidered cherubim, so that entering God's presence, I would pass the angels that stand as sentinels to be able to come into the presence of God where there I would see a throne, an Ark of the Covenant, upon which the King of Kings would sit to pass judgment upon all the law beneath him that you and I had broken. Now, I don't know if I want to come, and I certainly don't know if I can come boldly, because within that Ark are laws that I have not kept. Within that ark is manna that I have not praised God for providing. And within that ark are opportunities for me to be of service, that Moses' rod that perhaps I didn't fully live up to. And so, no, I think I'll just stay outside because I don't deserve to enter God's presence. That, to me, is why it's so powerful that the writer of Hebrews would invite us to come and to come boldly. Now again, there Hebrews would say, but I can't because I'm not, I'm not the right person and it's not the right time. Because according to the Old Testament, we'll see this in a couple of weeks in the book of Leviticus, only one day a year could one person enter the Holy of Holies. It had to be the high priest and it had to be the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur. Yom means day. Kippur, there's kafar, there's the verb to cover. It's the day of covering. 
And only on that day of covering can this high priest enter, part the veil, pass the cherubim, and enter that throne room of the King of Kings. Now there, once inside, he would perform some additional rituals that included the shedding of blood, recognizing the blood of the Lamb that was shed for all of us. It's the only way that we can overcome broken law. But here's where it gets a little interesting. Now, this is found nowhere in Scripture. You won't see it in the Old or New Testament. You won't see it in the Apocrypha. You won't see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So take this with a grain of salt, okay? Uh, I believe the first reference we have to it is in the Zohar, which I think is a 13th century AD text. But in it, it talks about on that Day of Atonement, as the high priest goes in pat through the holy place into the Holy of Holies, that according, according to this Jewish tradition, which may or may not be true, they would tie a rope, some kind of cord, around the ankle or the waist of the high priest, just in case something happened in there. Uh, as we see in the story of the Ten Commandments, and the fact that Moses himself would need to be veiled so people could endure his presence, that there was such thunder and lightning and quaking and smoke up on the mountain that the people wanted to stay down below and go, no, no, that's good, good enough, far enough for us. Moses, you go ahead and handle this. Well, there was a sense there that if something went wrong in the Holy of Holies, would the high priest survive his day of atonement? And the problem was, if he didn't, no one else is allowed to go in. So how are we going to retrieve the body? Well, if there's a cord tied around his ankle, at least we can drag the body out. Now again, take all of that with a grain of salt. We don't know if that ever actually happened or if that was simply later Jewish tradition. But the fact that even a tradition would arise suggests that the fear factor was probably real. We don't know if that was the solution, but this, the problem did seem to exist. In fact, I think that's where Hollywood got its idea for Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, forgive me for taking this quick aside to Hollywood, but the way Indiana Jones uh, plays it out why on earth would the Nazis want the Ark of the Covenant? Well, because if, if God is with you, then who can be against you? And if the armies of, of Israel could basically oh, annihilate any enemy in the field, as long as they had the Ark of God with them, then what could possibly stand up against the Third Reich if they have the Ark of the Covenant before them? So there's that side of things. But then if you remember this archaeologist who's an expert in, in ancient uh, Israel, he dresses up basically, it's a fascinating movie, uh, lots of things wrong, uh, but some interesting things right. Uh, this archaeologist dresses up like the ancient high priest. He, it's as if he is performing his day of atonement kind of ritual. But then what ends up happening uh, with some interesting 1980s CGI? Uh, he opens the lid and removes the mercy seat, uh, as if to, to have the throne step aside and then to look inside the Ark of the Covenant. And then again, as only Hollywood can, the faces melt off and, and, and everything's chaos. Well, as creative as, as Hollywood can be, there does seem to be a particle of truth there, at least as far as the power of God and the fear of God are concerned. Okay? I'm sure that you all, all want to go back and watch Raiders of the Lost Ark now. I, I kind of do too. Uh, but to understand what's happening there, 
come to the throne of grace? Are you kidding? There's no way. I'm, especially if I'm not the high priest. I'm nowhere worthy of that honor. And especially if it's not the Day of Atonement. Because it's the only day that that's allowed. No. I will let God remain safely hidden behind His veil. Because I am not worthy to enter His presence. Now, I want you to think about that. And I want you to put, help it, let it put in perspective what the writer of Hebrews is inviting us to do. Come. Come into God's house as if you were one of the Levites. In fact, as if you were one of the priests. In fact, as if you were the high priest himself. And come in to the throne room, to the Holy of Holies. There is nothing to fear here. So come boldly to the throne of grace. There was no destruction forthcoming. It was only mercy and grace to help in time of need. Now, as I've pondered that, it makes me wonder, what is keeping me from coming boldly to the throne of grace? Why the hesitation on my part to come unto Christ? And the more I think about it, I wonder if, there, if it can be divided into two possibilities, which can then be further subdivided based on your personality or how you're wired or what your experiences have been. On the one hand, I wonder if there are people who don't come to the throne of grace because, well, I'm doing just fine without it. I don't need the help. I, I think I can do it on my own. Or I don't need the mercy because I don't think I've really done anything really wrong. Well, that goes against <laughs> the natural man that we're all guilty of becoming. If you think about what Paul says to the Romans, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Or as King Benjamin says to the Nephites, we are all unprofitable servants, no matter how diligently we serve him, that we have all fallen short of God. And so we need his help. We, we need to come to the throne of grace because otherwise there's no coming home to God. In fact, there's an interesting verse in, in Alma chapter 38. No, 42. In Alma 42, Alma is speaking to his son, Corianton. And Corianton has made some major mistakes. Uh, broke the law of chastity on his mission, as you recall. Uh, but seems to be okay with it, at least until dad sits him down in chapter 39 and starts laying into him as far as the law of chastity is concerned. 39 is a strong chapter. Kind of singe your eyebrows, so to speak. And once totally devastated, once he realizes the significant seriousness of his sins, oh, Corianton, what are you going to do from there? Well, dad's not done. And so he teaches him doctrine in 40 and doctrine in 41 and doctrine in 42. Three different doctrines that will help reassure his son Corianton of the blessing of repentance and the absolute need to repent. Now, oh, there's a balancing act there. And by the end of chapter 42, he strikes that balance so beautifully. Notice verse 29. And now my son as I wrap up our conversation, I desire that you should let these things trouble you no more. I can picture Corianton going, oh, too late for that. Trouble me no more? Then why did you chew, in, chew me out in chapter 39? I was doing just fine not being troubled by my sins. I wasn't the only one that was hanging out with the, the border of the Lamanites with this harlot Isabel. 
And I, so I didn't feel that guilty. But after 39, you better believe I felt guilty. And so now, oh, don't be troubled. Well, okay, touche. You're right, son. I did want you to be troubled. But only to a certain degree. You know me, I'm always talking about proving contraries. And by proving contraries, it helps you stay within the Goldilocks zone. <laughs> One contrary is only too hot. The other contrary is only too cold. But if you can prove them both and strike that balance, then within the Goldilocks zone, you are just right. And so justice and mercy, Corianton was far too merciful with himself. Until chapter 39, dad lays down the hammer and he overcorrects and becomes so overly just. Do I have any hope? And so, yes, you do. Chapter 40, 41, 42. Can I get you into the middle? And here, as dad is saying, don't let your sins trouble you anymore. But then he goes on, only let your sins trouble you. Wait, don't be troubled? Oh, but yes, be troubled? Well, yes, be troubled a little. And how troubled should I be then? He ends the verse. With that trouble, which shall bring you down unto repentance. I've never seen a better verse to describe the Goldilocks zone of just how troubled should we be for our sins. If I'm not troubled enough, too cold, then I won't repent because I don't think I need to. But if I'm troubled too much, there's too hot then I won't repent because I don't think that I can. Now, if there is something, this first element of refusing to come boldly to the throne of grace, it might simply be we have all the boldness in the world, but don't realize just how desperately we need the grace that only Christ can offer us. And if we are too cold and not sufficiently troubled by our sins, then no, we won't come, and we need to. If we can be honest with ourselves and humble, then whenever we ask the Lord, Lord, is it I? Something will come to mind to remind us that the answer is always yes. That yes, we have sinned. To make it more personal, yes, I have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. And my only hope is coming unto Christ and receiving his grace there at the throne of grace, the mercy seat. Now, I would imagine that for most of us, that's the easiest obstacle to overcome, a recognition of our own sin. If that's hard for you, then maybe a little added humility is in order. But what about the opposite? What for those who live their lives with a little too hot, and I'm too troubled by my sins, and I don't think I can ever be forgiven from them. Then, of course I won't come. Because what would happen to me? Unworthy, before the throne of God, as he would probably banish me. This is Esther going forth, and I don't know if I'm worthy to be in the presence of the king. What will he do with his scepter? Pardon me, or banish me. And so here's this concern that we all feel. What to do then? And why don't we think we can? On the one hand, I think part of it is fear. But what kind of fear? In some ways, I think we have fear of what others might think. Because if I come to the throne of grace, everyone's going to know that that's what I'm coming for. Because that's what he offers. Mercy and grace. And it's only sinners that need mercy, right? It's only the weak that need grace. Really? Well, then guilty is charged. I need mercy and I need grace. But am I afraid 
of acknowledging that before people that might be quick to judge. Well, and slow to realize that they need to come to the throne of grace too. There's this great moment in the New Testament when Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. And the multitudes have been gathering around him. From that moment forward, there's almost, almost always multitudes around Jesus Christ. Which makes the next story all the more powerful. In the Matthew version, the Sermon on the Mount was Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 8 begins with a miracle to a leper. Now, every time I've seen paintings or like film depictions of this miracle, the leper always seems to be off on some back alley. And Jesus and maybe a few token apostles are with him as he heals this leper. But the way it's described in Matthew 8, legitimately, there would have been a multitude around him. He's just come down the mountain. The crowds are following him. And here comes this leper. Now, if there's anything a leper is going to fear, it is a crowd. No leper wants to brave a multitude because what, are, what do lepers have to do? They're constantly crying out, unclean, unclean. Or ringing their little bell to warn people, alert them that there is a contagion present. And please save yourself by avoiding me at all costs. Oh no, if there's one thing a leper would never want to face, it's a crowd. And yet, Jesus is in the middle of it. And if I want to come unto Christ, then yes, I have to brave the multitude. And this leper does. He comes boldly to the throne of grace, not caring what people would think, as they probably shy back and, and freak out and, and save yourself. Get this man away. Back to the leper colony outside of Israel. But not Jesus. When this man, so cut off from his surroundings, cries out, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. If thou wilt. That's the only thing I'm questioning. Your will. Do you want to? Not your ability. Thou canst make me clean. I know that much. But will you? And when Jesus says, I will, not yes, I have the power. You and I both know that. But I have the desire also. You came to me. I want to come to you and give you the help in time of need. You've been waiting this, for this for a long, long time. But even more than healing him from a distance, he touches him first. Jesus touched the man. He touched the untouchable. No one would have the courage to do that. But courage was rewarded with courage. And no, you're not going to contaminate me. If either of us is contagious, it's me, the Lord could have said. I can change you, heal you. You won't change or contaminate me. So I will touch. I wonder if that human touch was as much of the process of healing as the miracle that accompanied it. But that leper came boldly, not caring what people thought. Now, I've said before that almost always in Scripture, if you look hard enough, you will find a female equivalent of the male people that sometimes are more famous in Scripture. And who's the female equivalent of this, this male leper? It's the woman with the issue of blood. For a woman, the issue of blood is her version of leprosy because it does make her ritually impure, ceremonially unclean. And just like anyone touching a leper, 
becomes contaminated, or that's the fear. You're not allowed to touch a woman with the issue of blood either, or you become contaminated and must remove yourself from the camp of Israel as well for a certain amount of time. Well, this poor woman had been had suffered from her issue of blood for 12 solid years. Can you imagine 12 years of being cut off from family or friends or loved ones? 12 years of being judged by a culture that assumes that suffering is always caused by sin. So what have you done wrong? She has spent all of her living on physicians that have left her no better and only worse. And she's at the end of her hope. But she's heard about Jesus. And hope against hope, she comes to him. Now again, she's going to have to brave a multitude because that's all there ever is. And in fact, Jesus is rushing multitudes surrounding to be able to get back to Jairus' house to raise her daughter from the dead. Will he make it in time? They don't know that she's dead yet. Well, I can picture the emotional roller coaster this woman is on as she is hopeless until she thinks of Jesus and then comes. But that hope is also mingled with fear as she worries no one can find out because here I am trying to squeeze my way through the narrow streets of Jerusalem to reach out in hopes of just touching the hem of Jesus's garment. If I can do that, then he doesn't have to know that I've contaminated him. No one has to know. I have to keep this completely hidden. But if I can keep my condition out of sight, then perhaps I can find healing. And no one will ever have to know what was wrong with me to begin with. Well, I'm still on this emotional roller coaster. She braves the multitude just like the leper had. And reaching out to touch that hem, she feels virtue flow into her. And she's healed. Now, can you imagine the euphoria in that moment? She's gone from, from despair to hope and fear to courage to absolute relief and release and, and euphoria. There's no better word for it. I am healed. I'm whole. And that moment of rejoicing comes to a crashing halt the moment Jesus stops a step or two later, and wheels around and asks, who touched me? Can, uh, that's when the roller coaster drops off the edge. As all of her joy turns into absolute horror, he knows. He's going to know that I contaminated him, that my impurity has made him impure. The crowds around us are going to know as I jostled my way through in hopes of reaching him that I've contaminated all of them as well. What will they say? What will they think? But this is where the scriptural text is so fascinating. Because as Jesus stops and asks, who touched me? Well, first you're going to have Jairus and his servant freaking out like, why are you stopping? We're on a 911 call. We got to get back and, and, and heal my daughter and time is of the essence. This is the, the ambulance uh, screaming its way through traffic. Uh, and all of a sudden, the ambulance driver slams on the brakes on the other side of an intersection and turns around and says, somebody honked. Like, uh, everybody honks. What are you talking about? We got to get to the hospital. Nope, until I find out who honked. Well, 
There's Jairus and his concern. But all the other people watching this drama unfold. And here's where Peter says to Jesus, Who touched you? No offense, Master. That's like the dumbest question I've ever heard. These are the narrow streets of Jerusalem. Uh, everybody's touching you. You're kind of, this is like passing period in junior high, right? Uh, this is the, the mosh pit at the dance. Everybody's just kind of hitting up against everybody else. There's no avoiding it. Everyone honked. Everyone touched. But here's the irony. I think it's only in the Luke version of this story that in the midst of Peter's disbelief, what do you mean, who touched you? Everybody touched you. Luke adds this one detail. And when all denied, then the woman with the issue of blood came forth and confessed all. It's then that Jesus could honor her and say, that this wasn't just my virtue, this was your faith. Make no mistake, you participated in this miracle, in your own healing. You had the courage to come, and you came boldly. Yes, fearfully as well, but hopefully and, and, and dejectedly and all those other adverbs. But you had the boldness to come. In fact, you had the boldness to come forth and admit that you came for healing in the first place. And bless you for that. That faith hath made you whole. My virtue may have made you healed, but it was your faith and courage that made you whole. And the fact that he did all of that publicly, she's not going to be shamed by those that are around her. Wait, did she touch me on the way? No. She's fine. She's healed. She's whole. And it's beautiful to see Jesus reintegrate her into the community in that one moment, just as he had done for the leper the time before. Think about that, that statement from Luke, though. And when all denied on the one day, you understand the irony. What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody touched you, but nobody touched you. I mean, everyone else did, but not me. And as Jesus is looking around at all the people in this mosh pit, in this narrow, this narrow street, Everybody touched you, but no one is taking responsibility for it. That to me is such an ironic moment that I think sadly is played out every Sunday at church. As if Jesus were to take the stand right after the sacrament is passed and ask the question, who touched me? Who came today with sins to be forgiven? Who lifted up that piece of bread, that broken bread, with a broken heart that needed healing? Who dropped the empty cup back in the tray and with it laid a burden down? Who touched me? And when all denied, which is the ultimate painful irony, since everybody touched you, Everybody came to the sacrament table, that altar of sacrifice, that mercy seat. Maybe next Sunday when we see it again, we can think of it in those terms. There is our covenant, there is our ark of the covenant, and there is the throne of grace above it. There's the presence of God. And I came today seeking forgiveness, seeking mercy, seeking grace to help in time of need? Did I come boldly enough to admit 
that I needed it. I don't want to deny anymore. When Jesus asks who was healed and helped and made whole by my sacrifice, I want to be among the first to raise my hand. I did. Because I need help. Now, that, I hope, helps us get past some of that fear of what's keeping us from coming unto Christ. I, who cares what other people's eyes are doing? If, for example, the bread and water pass and you don't partake of it because you are trying to honor the sanctity of the sacrament as you are going through a process of repentance yourself, are we willing to go see a bishop when necessary? Are we willing to face the person we have offended and seek their pardon? Are we willing to come? Or are we afraid of what the eyes of others will do in singling us out as the guilty party? I think that's the beauty of section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord describes that court case where Jesus is our lawyer for the defense. And talk about an unenviable position, since everybody knows we're guilty. It's written all over our face. As Isaiah says, the show of their countenance doth witness against them. Everybody knows we've done wrong. In fact, we've confessed it. Uh, it's obvious. And so what on earth could a defense attorney say? Well, think back to what he says at the beginning of section 45. Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father. That's your defense attorney, who is pleading your cause before him, saying, so he's about to quote what his final arguments will be, and here it is. What could he possibly say when everyone in court, judge, jury, defendant himself, us, everyone knows their guilt? This is what he'll say. Father, in other words, your honor, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy Son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. Now that argument would hold no water in a mortal court of law, but in the eternal one it changes everything. Here's the defense attorney, and all eyes in the courtroom are trained on the defendant because the guilty verdict is about to be passed and sentence is about to be pronounced. And so what does our defense, our, our advocate say? Ladies and gentlemen of the court, of the jury, your honor, do you think you could pry your eyes off of my client for a moment to look at me? To behold the sufferings and death of him in whom there was no sin. I know my, my client is guilty. He or she has confessed as much. But I have paid the price for their sins. And if you will see the blood that I have shed, then you can forgive them. You can spare them, these my brethren who believe on my name. There's the Passover because of the blood of the Lamb. Now, like I said, no lawyer on earth would be able to say, but look at my credentials. I went to Harvard Law. Isn't that enough? No, it's, that doesn't change anything about the, the defendant. But in this one, it does change everything. Look at me. Don't look at them. 
If you look at them, you will see guilt. If you look at me, you will see an innocence so intense that scarlet sin can become white as snow. No wonder in the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, Joseph Smith prayed that when we repent of our sins, he hoped that God would look upon the face of his anointed, knowing that God would feel mercy as a result. May we not fear what others might think, if that's what's keeping us from coming boldly to the throne of grace. But what if it's not what others think? What if it's deeper than that? What if it's what the Lord thinks? And how could I possibly face my Savior, knowing what I've caused him? How can I possibly face my Father in heaven when I'm not clean enough to come? Now, when I was a little boy and sometimes misbehaved to the point that my mother was forced to say those blood-curdling words, just you wait till your father comes home. Oh, that was a death sentence to me. Uh, fearing my father. Uh, those were the days I was not singing, I'm so glad when daddy comes home. And, oh, I was scared to death. And so what would I do as a little boy? We had an end table that was just big enough to fit the church magazines after we'd read them but also just big enough to fit me if I literally just squeezed my way into it. I'd take all the church magazines out, hide them under the couch, and right before Dad got home, I would shove myself uh, back first into that little end table and then grab the screw that held on the knob and close myself into welcome oblivion. Yes, it was dark and it was claustrophobic, but I thought I could at least hide from my dad long enough to survive. <laughs> Sadly, I misjudged my father because there was nothing to fear. There would come forth forgiveness and some lessons to be taught on his end and some lessons to be learned on mine so that I could become a better boy but there was nothing to fear from my father. And the same is true here. We have nothing to fear from God in coming unto him. The way Amulek says it in Alma 34, the only thing that makes God angry is us assuming that he's angry, which suggests that we're the ones creating a God after our own invention. That no, I'm not that way. You can come. In fact, you can come boldly. Haven't we seen that already this year? Do you remember the scene when Jacob is scared to death of facing his older brother Esau? This is a prodigal returning to an elder brother that's never left the promised land. I know Esau literally had some issues, but if he's the Christ figure in that story, and this brother that offended him and then ran away, and 20 years have passed and Jacob still worries there's no way my older brother is over what I did to him. And so he keeps sending wave after wave of appeasement, of propitiation is another way to say that. And that's a word for atonement too. In fact, another translation of the seat of atonement or the mercy seat or the throne of grace is the propitiatory. And so this appeasement, and here is Jacob doing all that he can to try to pay off his brother in hopes he might be forgiven. 
And what does Esau say? As wave after wave of gift is given? Brother, what is this for? God has been kind to me. I can be kind to you. There's nothing to pay back. Keep what God has given you. There are no hard feelings between us. Go back and study again those phrases from that chapter. That Esau, or in our case the Lord, ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Or as Jacob says in trying to explain to Esau's confusion, again, what's with all the gifts? Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, grace to help in time of need, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. It's knowing that that kind of reunion awaits us that should give us the confidence to come, and to come boldly. It reminds me of the story in the Book of Mormon of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's scared to death to come back with Ammon and his brothers to the land of the Nephites. No, after all that we've done to them for so many generations, there's no way. And as Ammon and his brothers keep trying to reassure them, the king of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's comes up with an interesting thing. Okay, fine, it will go back, but so that we can be slaves to the Nephites until we have paid them back for our many murders. But that's the irony. How do you pay someone back for murder? There's no restitution there. So that's impossible. But more than that, it's also illegal because slavery is against the law of our father, the king. And what a beautiful description of the atonement of Jesus Christ also. Sometimes we think that I'm just going to work, I'm going to serve, I'm going to slave until I have finally paid God back for all he has done for me. Again, what would Ammon say to us? Number one, it's impossible. Your sins have already been committed. And there's no wishing them away into non-existence. But there is washing them away through repentance and forgiveness. And it's not through your own works. It's not through a lifetime of servitude, because guess what? Slavery is still illegal to our father, the king. Accept the gift God has given you. Accept the mercy of Jesus Christ. And let your scarlet sins be washed away, replaced with white as snow. You see, there's nothing to fear from Jesus because he already knows not only what we've done, but how we feel about what we've done. That was part of his atonement. Part of what allowed him to become at one with us and help us become at one with the Father. You see, I grew up next to Six Flags Magic Mountain in Southern California. And as a little kid, or like an early teenager anyway, what I hated about the beginning of the, the exciting rides was some cardboard cutout of some character with his hand out saying, must be this tall to ride. Oh, I hated that. Because it was keeping me off of the rides I really wanted to enjoy. Until I reached 54 inches. And then as a mighty four and a half foot soul, I could ride pretty much any ride in the park. At that time, I thought, honestly, I can, I can quit growing. Because the world is my oyster. This whole amusement park is open to me. 
Well, I'm glad I grew a little beyond that. But it has made me wonder, is there a minimum height requirement to be to access the gifts of God? Better said, was there a minimum suffering requirement for Jesus Christ? Now, the way Jacob describes it in 2 Nephi 9, the Messiah would have to overcome the monster with two heads, namely sin and death. Jacob describes it as a monster. And who can slay the monster by succumbing to death only to overcome it? Who is able to suffer the consequences of every sin ever committed? And when Jesus said, here am I, send me, we found our volunteer. But was there a minimum? As long as you suffer for sin and pay the price, and as long as you suffer death and overcome it, then the rest of humanity can overcome sin and death as well. Then why was there so much more? If you remember Alma chapter 7, verse 11, He, the Messiah, Jesus, shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. Now that's more than just sin. That's pain. That's affliction. That's temptation even. And this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. He will take upon him death, that one was required, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. But how about this for the non-required? He will take upon him their infirmities. Now notice the phrase keeps coming up, take upon. Not except when forced to. This seems to be Jesus asking for more, taking upon himself so much more than simply sin and death alone. And why do it? He will take upon him their infirmities that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. I mean, yes, the Spirit knoweth all things, he goes on. Nevertheless, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. So yes, even in premortality, Jesus knew cognitively, we've talked about this this year as well, he knew what the human experience entailed, but he didn't know it viscerally, gut level, down to the bowels, in English, we usually talk about the heart, but the gut is so much more accurate. Uh, if you've ever felt things like that, it's a gut feeling. And his bowels, he wanted them to be filled with mercy, according to the flesh, not just according to the omniscience of God. I need to con, descend, come down to be with, so I can be filled with compassion, suffer with, feel with. Everyone, in terms of what they're going through, because if I only suffer for their sins, I might end up hating them. At least that's how I would react. The only thing I felt from you is the consequences of your poor decisions. If, on the other hand, I ask to feel everything else and take upon me their weakness, their infirmity, then I'll know the kinds of weakness that they feel that makes it so hard for them to overcome temptation. 
In fact, if I can feel those temptations and how intense they sometimes gnaw at you, if I can feel your pain and your griefs and your sorrows, including the ones that come from a broken heart and a contrite spirit, then rather than being angry over your sins, I will feel nothing but charity because I know what you've been through and how you feel about what you've been through, including how you feel about what you're putting me through. And that would make it worth it to me as I strive to make it worth it to you to repent. We see similar things in Abinadi's words in Mosiah 15 as he's describing Jesus as both father's side and son's side since he received immortality from the father and mortality from his mother Mary, giving him the power to die, thank you mother, and the power to overcome death, thank you father, the power to suffer since he was the son, but also the power to endure beyond any limits of human suffering and pay the price for the infinite and eternal consequences of sin that he could only do because of his father's side. And so again, as Abinadi explains that in Mosiah 15, the father's side and the son's side, all in the same being, only one, Jesus Christ. It's that son's side that is able to make intercession for all of us because he understands us. If your fear of God or your fear of offending Christ is keeping you from coming boldly to the throne of grace, then come to know them better. There's no need to hide in the end table. There's no need to suffer in silence when you can come boldly unto Christ. No wonder that same writer of Hebrews, right before the verse about coming boldly, as if to to coax us into confidence, he says this, Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. See what he's saying there? Yes, he was sinless, but he does know the strength and pull of sin. He knows what temptation feels like and how hard it is to resist it at times. He was able to resist it every time. But he understands your inability to do likewise. Because he wasn't a high priest that couldn't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That yada, to know, to viscerally experience, the gut level. He wasn't untouchable. Ask Ask the leper that. Ask the woman with the issue of blood. As he touched them and was willing to be touched by them emotionally, physically, viscerally, I know what it's like. And I'm here to help. There's a a passage in 2 Kings that blows me away every time I study it. We'll see it in a couple of months when we get there. But it's the story of Elisha raising a boy from the grave. And it doesn't work the way he envisioned. Elisha was good at delegation. Often he would send his servant to go uh, work with Naaman, for example. In this case, go work with this woman and, and make sure you heal her boy. But he fails at it. 
And so he comes rushing back and Elisha is like, wait, it didn't work? I mean, you had my rod and everything. No, it didn't work. And so Elisha hurries on and comes to this boy. And looking down at him, he's inspired to perform one of the strangest miracles of healing you'll ever see in Scripture. Because it describes Elisha as lying down upon this boy, this dead body, and lying down with hands over hands and face over face. And with time, this boy feels life surge back within him. And he lives again. Now, as I've pondered that miracle, it's made me think of just how close to us the condescension of Christ brings him. That it wasn't him with his magic wand, a a staff at safe distance, waving away our wickedness or our woes. It wasn't him just saying, yeah, you're better. From distance. No, it was I had to come. I had to condescend. And as Christ does that and literally lies down and wraps our injured flesh around him, that he will see through our blind eyes and breathe through our still mouth and feel our lifelessness beneath him until he comes to completely understand and perfectly empathize with us until he feels our death seeping into him so that his life can begin seeping into us. No, he does not save us from safe distance. He comes. He came boldly. And we can come boldly unto him. That's what the atonement of Jesus Christ is for. Earlier in Hebrews He says it this way, He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Think again about the mercy seat, that there were cherubim on top, but God sits above them on this throne of atonement. And yet... He didn't stay hovering over us or even above the angels. As that verse says, he didn't take upon him the nature of angels. No, he came all the way down to be on our level. He descended from the throne to understand what the seed of Abraham really go through. Made like unto his brethren. So as it says elsewhere in scripture, he wouldn't be ashamed to call us brethren. He gets it. In fact, that helps us understand the way Jesus describes his atonement. We have all kinds of words for it, but what did Jesus call it? He wasn't even able to talk about it until 18 centuries had passed. But in section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, as Jesus himself describes what he went through in Gethsemane and Golgotha, he says it caused even me, God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to suffer both body and spirit. And 
to bleed from every pore, would that the, the bitter cup would be removed. He wanted to shrink from that. And yet, what does he say? And what did he say in Gethsemane and upon the cross? Glory be to the Father, he says. I give God all the credit for this. I partook, partook of that bitter cup that I kept begging God to take away from me. But glory to him that he refused, that he restrained himself so that I could overcome sin and death for everyone. So I could descend below all things so that anyone who hits rock bottom still has the rock beneath them to bear them up. Glory be to the Father. I partook and, and then here's his words, finished my preparations unto the children of men. I don't know of a better description of the atonement than the one that the atoning one himself provides. Oh, that? Gethsemane, Golgotha? Bleeding in the garden and then once again bleeding on the cross? I call that my preparation. Preparation? I thought you said it is finished when you gave up the ghost on the cross. Well, yes, but what was finished? Just my preparation, not my atonement. Because my atonement is what I do based on that preparation to meet your every need, to understand you, to empathize with you, to love you, to reassure you that you can come unto me. I remember President Nelson talking about if we talk about the atonement and separate it from the Savior, then we're not talking about the atonement anymore. It is the atonement of Jesus Christ, and it is He, not it, that saves us. There is no object of the atonement. There is only the person, the atoning one. And I think sometimes we picture in our minds this giant bank vault that we open up and there's this big pile of gold bullion that we can access to pay our debt to justice. There's the atonement. No. If you want to stick with the bank vault vision, then fine. But open it up and what will you see? You will see the throne of grace. You'll see the ark of our broken covenants but you'll see the Savior sitting on top of it, having risen above it and wanting to understand and help us understand that he does, that he's descended below all things to raise us up above all things. He is perfectly prepared to do so. And he paid the price of that preparation. I testify of that, and I am so grateful for that. That is what gives me the confidence to come boldly to the throne of grace, knowing that he will not misjudge me. He will simply offer me his mercy and his grace in all my times of need. No wonder the book of Hebrews calls him our merciful and faithful high priest. No wonder it describes him as not being a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Elsewhere, he's referred to as a high priest of good things to come. And again, that's all day of atonement symbolism. I can't come. I'm not the high priest. That's okay. He is. I can't come. It's not the day of atonement. Oh, every day is a day of atonement now. In fact, if think of it in these terms, remember Old Testament 
tabernacle, Temple of Solomon, I have to pass the veil to be able to enter the throne room of the King of Kings, to come into the Holy of Holies. And I am not as holy as that holiness demands. And yet what happened? When Jesus died on the cross, such symbolism in this moment that as his body was finally broken and his spirit and body were torn apart, the veil of the temple was torn in half as well. With this interesting detail, the rip began at the top, that it was rent in twain from top to bottom. This was not us down below trying to force our way into heaven. This wasn't us ripping open this veil. No, it was God in his mercy parting the veil from heaven to earth so that we might enter. That's what the atonement of Jesus Christ did. That is the Easter message. That the veil has been parted and you and I are free to enter. In fact, listen to this verse also from Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. We speak of the boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Coming boldly to the throne of grace. Here's this boldness mentioned once again. And then he goes on. It's by the blood of Jesus. It's by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. And then here's the reveal. That is to say, his flesh. In that verse, we see it clearly that the veil of the temple is meant to represent the body of Christ, his flesh. And that just as the flesh of Christ was broken on the cross, so the veil of the temple was rent in twain. So that as we pass through Jesus, there's the blood of the lamb on our lintel and doorposts at the Passover. He will pass over if we will but pass through. And what are we passing through? The blood of the lamb. We're passing through the body of Christ. In fact, if you think about sacred places and your own opportunity to go from holy place to holy of holies, as you stand before a veil, wondering if you truly can come through it, into the presence of God. If you can enter the Holy of Holies, what is that veil? It is the body of Christ. So that as God reaches out to you, and you reach back to him, it is through Christ that we come together. Or even as, as you are afraid of looking at God in the eye, that all-seeing, piercing view, Rather than see us, what does God see? He sees his son. He sees the veil and only sees us through it. That he cannot look upon us without first seeing Jesus. Now, once again, can you hear Joseph's prayer of dedication? That you might have mercy upon us as you look upon the face of thine anointed if I can allow myself to be seen, seen as I am seen by God through Christ, his image reflected in my countenance, then I will have the confidence to come and to come boldly. So my dear friends, 
at this Easter season, whatever is keeping you from Christ, let it go. Get over it. When Joseph of Arimathea found out that Christ had finally died, it says that he went to Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. That's an interesting verb, to crave the body. But there's an interesting adverb as well. Joseph of Arimathea, this honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. This amazing disciple came and came boldly. Or how about those incredible disciples that had a friend that there was no way of getting him to Jesus, packed by the, surrounded by the multitudes as always. And so what did they do? They carried him to the roof and tore apart the, uh, the roof tiles to be able to lower their friend to the healing hand of Christ. There's boldness. Tear off somebody's roof? Yeah, uh-huh. But if there's something separating you from Christ, it just has to go. Or, G, or Peter, excuse me, when he's on in the boat uh, in John 21, and they see someone on the shore, unsure of who it is. But then once they realize that it's Christ, what does Peter do? He dives in the water. He swims until he can come to the shore to once again be with Jesus. This is the same Peter that was willing to walk on water to get to him. There's boldness. So what's keeping us? Is it fear of, of Esau? Is it brothers f afraid of Joseph, worried that he can't possibly have forgiven us for all that we've done against him? Is it Esther's fear of the king? Is it our hesitation to fully rely upon the love of God? which passeth all understanding, that neither height nor depth nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I testify of that love this Easter season. And I pray that you will come running to an empty tomb, as Peter and John did. And once you see that it's empty, and that the grave cannot keep Christ from coming to you, then keep running but this time turn around and run back to let the world know that he is not there, but he is risen. And that those who are seeking the living among the dead have better places to look for him. If it's, if it's waves and wind and water that's keeping you from Christ, then dive in and start swimming. If it's a roof that's keeping you from him, then rip apart the tiles and lower yourself down to him who lowered himself to your level. Whatever it might be, if there's a veil, if there's cherubim and the flaming sword, if there is wickedness or, or simply brokenness that's keeping you from Christ, then please accept his Easter invitation and come.